Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lucky Episode 13 of Myth vs. Craft. My guest today is the renowned photographer Todd V. Wolfson. He picked up his first camera over 40 years ago, and though he's done editorial, food, and commercial photography, his heart is in photographing people. He moved to Austin in 1979, where his distinct style and approach have made him a favorite with local and visiting musicians both on and off the stage. He's photographed all the main movers and shakers, including Will and Charlie Sexton, Joe Ely, Jimmy and Stevie Ray Vaughan, Alejandro Escovedo, Cat Edmondson, Gary Clark Jr., and many, many more. I visited Todd at his home, where we sat down to talk about photography and what it means to him. Before we start, I want to take a moment to ask you for a favor. I normally don't do this, but I'll take a shot this time. If you enjoy this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you can take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes or even better, write a review. This would go a long way toward helping me book more guests and bring you more conversations like this one. With that out of the way, here's my conversation with Todd. Todd, thank you so much for welcoming me to your home. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on here. I believe you started taking photos at a very young age. Do you remember the first time that you picked up a camera? I can't tell you the first time I picked up a camera, but it was it was an era. It was like because I my as my story goes, everything kind of happened when I was seven years old. It's when I really started for me picking up brownie Kodak brownie cameras, and then right after that, Instamatic cameras started coming out. My dad also had um, Super Eight and Regular Eight movie cameras, which my brother. It's more the video guy and and film guy always, but sometimes he liked to make little scenarios and be in them. So I became his camera guy on film stuff. I just was really enjoying the visual arts at a young age. And same thing with, I had two young friends that were musicians and um, I started playing music kind of like as poorly as I do now. You know, I started playing that at a young age too. So it's kind of like around seven I really started realizing that all that kind of stuff was really fun. I mean, it all kind of happened at once, literally, and I kind of never have not gone there since. Was it a gradual thing where you periodically started doing more of it and perhaps your your interest in other activities started waning or was it a overnight being lightning bolt you, thing? Being as that you're a child of your family, you're kind of early on reliant on what they, you know, what they import into your life. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. the, the cameras they had already, I started using. And so my dad, you know, like I said, he went from the brownies to the Instamatics. And then my dad was a buyer, went on a Japanese housewares buying trip. And he brought back a Minolta as I got a little bit older in my like teens and, you know, in, in junior high to high school. And so I started using that real camera, that Minolta SLR, you know, it was mm -hmm. a, it's a great camera. And it's so funny because there's this, um, kind of joke about a lot of parents, they get these cameras and they mostly sit in like their sock drawer or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. they bring them out just every once in a while. But I always was drawn to those and was like, can I take it out? Can I do this? And I started photographing, you know, my 
pet dogs and my friends and just, you know, just things immediately that started interesting me. But it was, it's funny when I look back, it was mostly people even back then. I mean, I've always photographed everything, but people seems uh, like as, as far as an art form goes, taking portraits and, and documenting people has always been pretty much my thing. I mean, even from the get go. How were you uh, developing that film? Were you taking it to a lab or was someone helping you yeah, with it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's in the era of like photo mats and tiny little camera shops and all that. And then my earliest memories of going somewhere on a regular basis was about maybe three quarters of a mile from my house. There was a photo mat little kiosk drive up, you know, two sided thing. You know, you can drive in from either side and there's just a person in there writing your name on an envelope and then. Somebody comes along once or twice a day, picks it up and takes it to the lab and right. brings it back. That was amazing. And a little bit later on, this is about, I guess I was 13. No. Yeah, I was 13, I think, when this happened. I wasn't yet 14. We got tickets to see Alice Cooper in Tulsa, the Billion Dollar Babies Tour. And I was like in like 12th or 13th row. My brother and some of his friends were in the very front row in the same on the same aisle, you know, same row of seats as us, but way up in front of us. And I'm watching this Alice Cooper show and I have my Instamatic camera. And it's so funny because I see people now that do this. And I'm sure I did it back then where you take a picture with a flash cube from like <laughs> 50, 60 feet away and you think it's actually going to light your subject and of course it's just lighting the back of somebody's <laughs> head but alice cooper during during a hello hooray starts going along the front row of people and he's wearing like a a white tux hat a white top hat and white tux jacket and he's got kind of a blood-stained leotard it's so awesome and he's going around shaking everybody in the front row's hands mm -hmm. And I see that happen, and I'm, he's way over to the left, but I see he's coming over more to the right, and he's going to be, like, right where my brother is, like, any minute now. So I rush up the aisle with my Instamatic and my flash cube and all that, and literally I probably had my butt in the face of the person in the second row, but I just kind of jutted over kind of where my brother was, and right as he was shaking my brother's hand, I just shoved the camera up in between him and his friend and took a picture of Alice Cooper. And if you go to like my Facebook page, it's my constant, you know, it's my profile picture. It's kind of like my, my iconic picture of my life because it's still a picture to this day that is pirated on the Internet. Oh, wow. Like it's I've seen it. I've seen it on products that are Alice Cooper bootleg products and stuff. It's weird. It's like this photo I took when I was a kid, like kind of set me for life. And getting back to the photo lab side of that story, the guy across the street from me owned a one day photo lab. And that was like just beginning to be a thing back then where you could just go in in the morning and pick it up in the, in the evening or drop it off in the evening and pick it up, you know, noon or whatever and he had a franchise like that and i gave him the film and this is this is the this the what i think really must have started it in my head i give him the film he looks at it you know i'm sure and brings it back home to me and we see that one picture i have a bunch of other pictures on the roll of the alice cooper show and they're just whatever you know just shots 
but he sees that one. He goes, let me crop that and turn that into an eight by 10. You could sell that at your, at your junior high. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, I'll do them for 75 cents a piece. I think he made me like 20 or 25 of them. And I sold them for $2 a piece. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And I sold like, <laughs> I sold out of them like the first day. I held a couple the second day for a couple friends that were like, man, I don't have that money. Didn't have $2 <laughs> or whatever, you know. But that was the first time I ever made, I mean, all that, just getting that one shot, which is what photography is all about anyway. And then, you know, this guy that had business savvy going, hey, dude, you can sell that. That was life-changing pretty much, I guess, you know. <laughs> Where did you go uh, from there? Then, it, you know, it was back to just shooting my dogs and my friends <laughs> and, you know, getting my dad's getting my dad's camera from him, the SLR that he got in Japan, turned into like as I got into my senior year in high school, and I was shooting little bits all this time. It was never a massive thing, but, you know, just little bits here and there. But more than, you know, your father would with a camera, you were using it a lot. And uh, I started to get on my senior year. I decided it would be really cool. One of my good friend's mom was the was the teacher and spot, whatever they called him, the sponsor of that class or, or, or extracurricular activity that it was to be the yearbook staff. And me and two other people were the yearbook photographers. One of them, she didn't really do much. She was more of a darkroom person and just did a few things. The other guy and, and I shot like a lot of the stuff, but the majority of that, my senior yearbook, the majority of it is me. And that was like, I got to really like for the first time express myself, like kind of showing on the, like I took a lot of portraits of the teachers. I took a lot of documentary portraits of just cool stuff going on around the school. I took, I did sports photography, which especially like football games were kind of boring to me because it's so slow. I mean, I don't care what anybody says about football. I think it's the slowest sport there is, you know, it in baseball, I could really give or take. But basketball for me was such a good training ground in general for being a documentary photographer because you have to know where to be it's not about following the action as much as it's about like thinking on your on your feet because if you're shooting something down here and somebody's running up to the you know make a make a basket on the other end of the field and you're not there you're not a very good photographer. Right. So I would have to think ahead of like the players sometimes, like where, where's this going to go? And just the, the athleticism that was in it, the, the dance part of it, you know, just the jumping and moving. I just, I, it really taught me a lot about like being in the moment. Were you pretty confident that, that you were good at this? Were you getting feedback from peers, no, from teachers? No, I don't think it's ever about, I mean, for me, I don't talk about anybody else, but for me, it's never about being good at it. I've been told for years now, for years, thank God, you know, all, you know, thank God. And I'm saying this humbly, that every day people acknowledge something that I did artistically for them or with them or whatever. I love that, but I don't think personally I ever have totally felt that way. I just rely on the on the reviews of other people, but I don't think it's about feeling like you're good. I think it's about if you know you have something and 
you know, sometimes it's just the, for lack of a better word, it becomes a passion. It just becomes, you do it just like you eat or you walk or you, you know, do anything, you know, it's for me, it's like, I can't imagine not picking up my camera day to day, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm making some weird document of something that's in my house or going out with somebody and creating spontaneous art or going to an assignment or a show or whatever. It's like, I never, you know, it's the unknown to me. You know, photography to me is, is, is unlike a lot of people who love to plan and create that way, especially in photography and painting. It's kind of like the way I shoot. It's like some people plan and they, they know what lighting they're going to use and they have stylists and they have concepts and all that. I'm a different kind of person. I, in my, in my creative side, portraiture wise, or my documentary stuff, the more I don't know to me as an artist is like, that's the excitement for me. Like what's going to happen, you know? Upon graduating from high school, what were your plans? What were you thinking of doing? What role did photography play in your future plans? Well, it didn't. I fell in love with my high school sweetheart my senior year. My senior year also, my parents moved to Texas. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I did all my public schooling in Tulsa. And my senior year, my parents moved, but they were graceful enough to let me stay and, you know, finish my senior year in Tulsa. But then when that, you know, when high school was over, I was moving to Arlington, Texas, which, you know, that's nowheresville, baby. It really was horrible. And so I already was in love with my high school sweetheart, Lori. And so as soon as I was there, I was already ready to be out of there. And I had bought a car. I'd worked a job. And so I kind of loaded up my car and she came and helped me. And I moved back to Tulsa and lived, I lived with her folks. I lived it at, you know, little, a room, renting a room on somebody's house, stayed with friends and all that until, you know, I just, I just had jobs and I was into just hanging out with her and all that. And it wasn't until I was going to North Texas state for a semester. And this was like maybe a year and a half after I graduated from high school and she was in Corpus Christi. It was weird. We were both in Texas. Her family had moved to Corpus from Tulsa in this time. And we came here. And we, you know, we went to the Armadillo World Headquarters, saw Captain Beefheart. We walked around the drag, which was super hip and very, a lot of, very local, very small and beautiful. You know, it wasn't all, you know, Quiznoian and all that kind of stuff, you know. It wasn't all modern. And just Austin was so beautiful back then. It was so minimalist still. You could drive out into the hill country and there wasn't any shopping centers or whatever. It was just hill country. And, you know, that was a beautiful time. But what I also noticed, like, immediately, and then we, we loved it so much, like, in about seven, eight months, we ended up just moving here. Together? Yeah. She she was, like, finished kind of what she was doing with her family in Corpus and I didn't really dig being in Denton, Texas. So we're like, this is a cool place. Let's move here. And it was then, like, I kind of felt it the first time I was here that this would be a good town to do what I do in. But then when I came back here, I started to look at publications and look what was going on. And any photographer that was doing anything in my realm of what I liked, which was portraiture of people, 
was somebody who owned a portrait studio. And if you saw it in a magazine, you know, and I looked those people up, they weren't really an editorial photographer. They were more of a portrait studio person, or they were somebody who was just editorial that did everything. You know, mm -hmm. they did, you know, a portrait, but they also did food and they did this and that. And I've done all that. I've done every kind of photography you could do in my years. But the first thing I noticed, because I grew up on Philippe Halsman, who was a not just an entertainment photographer, but he photographed the movers and shakers, the the princes and princesses, the presidents, all that stuff. I looked at, at Richard Avedon. I looked at Helmut Newton. I looked at a lot of photographers, but there was a handful that really, they did the same thing, but they did it with a very distinct style. There's many more than them. There's a ton at, at, at that time. But they were my, they were my three favorites. And when I moved here, I realized nobody in this town of creativity, it's always been a town of creativity, nobody was photographing just the movers and shakers, just the portrait, being the portrait artist to the the creative community and the politicians and the choreographers, just every, everybody that was out there, you know, I, uh, people from school teachers to John Henry Falk to like the first things I was doing here I, my first year here, I ran into Frank Zappa and R. Buckminster Fuller and just all these things, you know, all in the first year I was here made me know, ooh, this is definitely, you know, this is not a bad place. This is definitely the place to settle down and do what I do. And I basically knew because it was a time when I could do that. Now it's so much different because there's hundreds and that? hundreds of photographers. I moved here and started realizing that stuff as early as 1980, but I didn't start part-time photographing, you know, even professionally till probably the later part of the 80s. And then already by 90, I'd quit any job that I had. And by 90, I just dove in thanks to friends of mine telling me, you got to do it. You know, if you don't do it now, you'll never do it. And I just, you know, sometimes you have to take that leap and, 90 was the year that I took the leap and just have done it full-time ever since 1990. How did you go about finding paying gigs in 90 and all of a sudden earning your living by doing that full-time? Did well, you have a good network by that point? I'd been hustling the Chronicle for a long time and it took me a long time and it wasn't, that wasn't easy. And it wasn't till like 92 and I started bugging them in the, in the late eighties when mm -hmm. they started. And it was the Chronicle. It was going to a few clothing stores and salons and saying, I want to do this. I want to, you know, photograph the hair models. I want to photograph the clothes on people. And just, you know, getting out there in the music scene and starting to work with people like Alejandro and Joe Carol Pierce and Troy Campbell and Scrappy Judd Newcomb and all these people back then, um, uh, the coffee sergeants, a lot of bands that were doing stuff at the time. I just started working with them and, you know, if they had a record and I did something that was kind of cool on it or their press photos or whatever, bit by bit, you know, in a town like this, it just, it's a family. It's a, the, the creative dome is not as big as the people moving here is, you know, there's two domes in Austin to me. There's the, you know, mass populace of Austin, but the creative community is still got to certain degrees that Mayberry RF, you know, that Mayberry just little 
small town, you know, everybody knows everybody. Everybody's somehow connected to everybody in the creative community. So that's been, that's actually been, you know, the kind of the easiest part of it, almost too easy for, for me, you know, now, where it's like, I'm well known and I sometimes have sat back on just that people know me and look for gigs. And now I'm a lot more gregarious about, I realize how big Austin is. And I'm like, Ooh, I got to find new ways to like make all those other thousands of people that don't know who I am. Because I, like I'm saying, it's a whole different ball game. Back then I was like one of the, you know, almost pioneers of doing almost solely people photography, mm-hmm. you know, and making a living at it and being one of maybe a handful of guys that were doing it, guys and girls, people like Brenda Ladd, people like uh, Mark Guerra, a guy named Scott Van Ostel. You know, there's a few other people, Randall Alhadif. There, You could name them on, you know, one or two hands, the people that were really doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what drove me. I think if I got into it now, I'd be like, <laughs> maybe I'll... You know, maybe I'll program computers or something. I don't know. You're uh, very well known for your photographs of musicians, both on and off stage. Uh, Why do you think you've excelled at this type of photography? Um, Working with creative people, working with people that approach things the way that I do. And that's like music of anything, like music and painting. A lot of things, a lot of things people take In all arts, people take preconceived things that have been done before and they kind of adapt them to themselves. And, you know, I wouldn't say I haven't done that because I've adapted ideas from all my favorite photographers. But I, like I said, I approach everything kind of in a layering way. Like I don't plan it as much as I see what I've got to work with and then I build on that. And music's very much the same way. So those people, when... I create the way I create. They really relate to that because when they go into the studio, maybe they have a bare bones idea of what they're going to do, or maybe they even have a more concrete idea of what they're going to do. But what eventually comes out of it is sometimes very different. And that's, that's an approach that's kind of similar. And I think I work with musicians and creative people because they're more like minded and, and they, they don't need they don't need the reassurance of knowing everything. Mm-hmm. They have the trust of the process. And so for me, that's like, that's the fun part is people trust me and, you know, knock on wood, I deliver something that is different. And for me, for me, that's, that's what I'm trying to do each time I photograph somebody is kind of make them go, See, see how pretty you are. See how cool mm-hmm. you look, you know, because, you know, you know how everybody is. You know, you'd be like, oh, I don't like my cheekbones. I, right. I hate my neck. My fingers are fat, you know, whatever. It's like, I'm not saying that to you, by the way. <laughs> but that's what I've learned, like sitting, watching people look at their own photos. That's the that's the funniest part. It's like people that I just I don't see their flaws. I just go. Wow, they're cool looking. Wow, they're a neat person. Gosh, you know, I'm all in the moment of of it and all that. And then I show them something hoping to hear, oh, God, that's nobody's made me look like that, which I get that. But all the other stuff I've heard over the years kills me because it's like, oh, look at that flap under my arm. Seems like that's a that's a my calves are too thick. A higher higher (laughs) bar to clear in that you can have an uh, arguably uh, outstanding shot with great composition, great light, uh, great mood, great vibe, great everything. 
and, and have it be appreciated by a room full of people. But then there's the higher bar, which is the subject of the photograph liking it as well. And like you said, just being able to get past the, the, the very unique way in which they focus on their own flaws. There, there is a series of photos called In the American West by Richard Avedon. It's, you know, after he retired, quote, throwing quotation marks, he went into the American West and photographed beekeepers and oil workers and ranchers and waitresses and just anybody he could find. But instead of photographing them in this rustic Western environment or this, you know, quaint environment, everywhere he went, he had rolls and rolls and rolls of white paper. And he would photograph these people with a big, you know, large format camera against this white backdrop and isolate who that yeah. person was. That's something that stuck with me. And it's, you see it in a lot of my work is isolating the soul like that. But the thing is, the point I'm making from what you said is he had a show in New York and he paid for everybody that was in that book. He, he knew he'd got, you know, he'd kept tabs with them and he invited them all to come. And now these prints were huge. They weren't just like the size that would fit in this room. They're museum size. Yeah. They're, they're like, you know, seven feet by 10 feet and they're, they're huge prints. And like a couple of them are outside the museum. And there's a book about that show that was written and, and photographed by a friend of his. And it talks about and talks to some of those people after they saw that show. And like one guy said, he was like the guy that had a photo of himself outside the place. And he saw something, some darkness inside his soul because it was huge. Uh -huh. He saw that picture and he said, like, after that, I changed everything about my life. And oh, like wow. a little waitress girl that came from a small town, she's, you know, I don't think she ever really dug who Richard Avedon was or whatever. She was just, you know, small town girl. And she, it's, it, the story is she, you know, told Richard Avedon, she's like, I don't like that photo at all. Oh, wow. I look like, you know, the kind of the, I don't like the way my face looks or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's funny. It's perception is a funny thing. You mentioned uh, when we first met that you, uh, you do a lot of street photography or that you consider yourself a street photographer. More than, more than anything. Yeah. How do you approach it? And I'm curious in that as an amateur photographer myself, it's something that I've I've always struggled with. And I'm referring to being able to walk up to someone and capturing an image and not knowing how or when to do it. Uh, of course, you don't want to ask for permission before you do it, but then may, perhaps approaching them after the photograph. What's yeah. your approach? Okay. Well, number one, when I say I'm a street photographer, it's not that kind of street photographer. Ah, got it. I have friends, like I have a friend, Todd Crusham, and there's people like Gary Winogrand. He made his career on things like this, that they really are those kind of people. And I still don't know how you do that. I, I couldn't, I'm not good at that, at approaching people I don't know. I'm more of a director. When I say that, I'm a guy that doesn't like, I don't like to go set up these shoots in these million dollar homes or in these buildings and all that where I have to get clearance from a, you know, a manager or an owner and all that. Because every time, every time that you get more people involved in like portraiture, as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. the farther you get away from the truth, you know, you have to, what are you going to do with it? You know, what's your purpose? And 
you can only do it then. Well, I don't want to do it then. And right. da, 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 da. You know, all those kind of things. And also, like I used to work a lot with salons, clothes stores, magazines and all that. And I do that a lot less. I like working one-on-one -on -one with people because the whole thing is for me, being out on the street is very free. You never, again, know what's going to happen. Anything mm -hmm. can happen. When I'm out and I'm shooting somebody... I look at, are they dressed in denim? Are they dressed in black leather? Are they wearing a beautiful, colorful dress? Is this something very monochromatic? And then, because I know Austin so well, it's like a bunch of little studios to me. I know, ooh, I'm going to shoot over at Fifth and Chacon. Ooh, I'm going to shoot at, you know, the Pennybacker Bridge, whatever, wherever I'm going to shoot. You know, I'm going to shoot out in the woods. You know, I know all these little areas around town, urban ones, natural ones, all that. So I work that way. And by street photographer, I just like the freedom of driving around sometimes with somebody and you'll see something or something will happen as you're out there doing it. And it could only happen out in the wild of Austin. You know, that's just something unexpected, but perfect happens. And to me, I call that, you know, leaving it open to the magic, keeping it outside of the box. But that's, again, about trusting the process. I know how to use my camera. I know how to get what I need out of a person at this point. The manipulation and the button pushing and the, you know, the where you just put them, you know, why you don't put people in the studio all the time, why you take them out. You, It's all psychological. The way they're leaning, all that stuff is mm -hmm. all got little bits of psychology so i'm directing people out on the street because that's the freest place to do it sometimes it's not sometimes you have to have a place you have to know we're going to shoot here because you're trying to achieve something like that but for the most part i've never based any of my photography much on on concept mm -hmm. it's more on emotion soul and just like i said being out on the street i, I got pretty much everything i need out there so it sounds like you don't even provide much guidance ahead of time in terms of... No, I tell people not to think. I said, think a lot about your wardrobe and what feels good to you, okay. what you need to achieve. If we're achieving a CD cover and they got a vibe for it, it's up to them to tell me who they are clothing-wise. If I'm doing something for, you know, a business portrait, whatever it is, it's up to them to inform me. You know, if I'm shooting a classical musician, they might not want to be a stuffed shirt. They might want to show themselves as friendly. So I'm not going to, somebody says, do my headshot. I'm a classical violinist. Right. I'm not going to say, well, bring a black dress and a navy blue dress and a sports coat, whatever. You know, I'm not going to tell them what to do. I want to see them bring something to the table and then meet them and create together. I mean, to me, like I said, that's how you're going to get a good portrait, not by just somebody going, you're the photographer, do whatever, right. you know, it's a coming together. It's not a direct directing. It's like I direct by being easygoing. And like I said, you know, the best word I can say is manipulation. You have to know how to talk to people, how to do little things, when to tell them to breathe, you know, when to tell them to stretch and look away, all that kind of stuff. When you work with a subject, do you typically meet them for the first time on, on the day of the photo shoot? Hopefully, or do you, do you hopefully like not. I always like to meet with somebody because you're going to find out something, you know. I mean, they're as scary as, as this is. Sometimes you don't meet with somebody and they show up and they've got like 
some weird skin condition and all that. And being a photographer, it's not me being judgmental. It's being like, oh, my God, I'm going to need to, like, spend nine hours in Photoshop. Right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? You don't want surprises. You don't want somebody to, you know, tell you one thing. And then when you see them, you realize we can't do what they were thinking. This is not going to work. I, they're, they, they're not comfortable enough or they don't have the vibe or whatever. And see, that's part of my job, too, is to know how to get the best out of somebody like a lot of people that I work with, they, they know themselves pretty well. So they give me a lot of information. There's a lot of people that don't. And sometimes I turn down a gig because I, if I don't know what I'm going to do with somebody, like if I can't figure it out in a meeting or whatever, then that's a problem because I might not give them what they want. And then it's just going to be a problem. You know what I mean? It's going to somewhere down the road be a problem. But for me, the a fun part is to figure out for the people who being photographed isn't their thing necessarily, you know, how to how to give them what they need and how to get that out of them. I mean, that's that's kind of a fun challenge because then you feel really great when you do it, you know. So what what do you look for? What answers are you trying to get? If you were meeting a subject for the first time, you set up a meeting, what are you looking to find out? That, well, I mean... There's got to be, it doesn't have to be like, you know, your soul sister, your soul brother, but you have to have some connection of, you know, what you're, what you're trying to achieve. And like I said, sometimes it's like you just, you know, most everybody you can make happy, but part of being self-employed, part of being an artist is to work with people that ultimately you're working with everybody and you're happy. You know what I mean? You know, my happiness is paramount in my work or I wouldn't be doing it, you mm -hmm. know. So you, you're trying to alleviate problems, whether they're big, huge problems or minor things that you just don't want to deal with. It's like I'm looking for somebody I can connect to, somebody who gets what I'm doing. You know, I've had plenty of clients who see what I do, but they they don't really get it. And so they'll say, I see what you do, but and they'll ask me to do something totally what I feel is out of my realm of comfort because I can't do everything. You know what I mean? It's like I am who I am artistically. So if I feel uncomfortable that I can't give them that, like I said, I'm just going to say no, turn the job down or send them to somebody that can. You know? mm -hmm. Do you have any, uh, any favorite subjects? Mm, too many. That'd be the easiest answer. Does it become easier to, to photograph something once you have that relationship and you've been photographing them for years? It's different. I mean, there's no, with anything, there's no formula, you know, with anything like this anyway. There's certain people that are my best friends that I've been photographing for decades. And we have a lot more fun hanging out than, you know, the doing the photos part of it is. I wouldn't say it's like pulling teeth, but it's just not natural for us. You know what I mean? Right. Because our nat naturalness is hanging out, creating music or, you know, shopping at the record store, or going out to eat. It's not sit over there and I'm going to tell you what to do. <laughs> and then there's other people that I've been shooting my whole life that are just like every time I shoot with them, it's not like a better level. Sometimes it's not as great, but it's a different level. And it's like it's fun for me to have muses. I, I, I work with what a lot of people call models, but not the, actually not that many. A lot of my models slash muses are musician friends of mine, artists, friends of mine, friends of mine, you know, just general friends. 
And it's just people that I, again, relate to, and it's fun for them to express themselves that way. I call it therapy a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. Because doing what I do, like I said, I love to do it every day. So if I have a chance to just create with somebody that I know is going to just be fun, that's why I'm doing this. You know, I'm not doing my photography for money. I'm a guy that is lucky enough to make money at being an artist. I'm not a commercial photographer. I never have wanted to be. But being an artist that can make money and being able to do what I do and a good part of the time make money at at that process and the other part of the time just express myself and, like I said, not deal with stylists or other people coming in telling me what to do, just me and that person going out and creating and you know, it makes us happy. And eventually, you know, it makes people who love us happy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like creating art. I think what I do makes people feel good. People have told me that they're like, do you realize that when you leave somebody, I got, I got to say, one of my friends told me this and it was amazing, but they said, do you realize every time you leave somebody from doing what you do, that you leave them happy? And I never thought about that. It was pretty cool. You know, when people tell me stuff like that, I think I'm too dumb to figure it out myself. So when they tell me, I'm like, cool. <laughs> when you, uh, when you uh, uh, take the photos, you come back to, to, your, to your studio, you, you review them, you edit your work, and you're ready to present it to, your, to the subject, do you typically just send them over? Do you make it a point to meet with them and, and show them and share the material in person? I used to share the material in person, but... It's so much easier now because, you know, back then you'd go over a contact sheet with a loop, you know, and things like that, or look at slides together and all that. And the client thing was a little, it was, it was a more quaint business. It was smaller and all that. But I love the fact now that instead of taking 72 shots of somebody or 188 shots or, you know, lower numbers of shots that you would take on film. Mm -hmm that now I can take thousands of pictures of people and now I can just give them a thumb drive or load something up on a Dropbox folder or something and I can let them go to town on it, all of it. Or I can edit some of it and edit out all the useless stuff and edit it down to what they really need and not have to hear how fat their thighs are, you know, and how baggy their eyes are Mm -hmm. and all that. So I love... I mean, I made a commitment to not sitting around with people. I have friends all the time going, hey, let's look at it right away. And I'm like, no, let's don't. (laughs) You know, I don't like it. It's like, why waste the time? They can go look at it and have their vibe and view of it. And I can look at it on my own and have my own vibe and view. And then when if we come together there, great. You know, if they're like, oh, I like those same ones. And, you know, I go through them and I send them the ones I love, you know, my very faves. But... No, I don't like – I do not like editing with people anymore. It's like tedious. <laughs> do you ever shoot film anymore? Once in a while I shoot some Holga and I just recently found a Polaroid camera and I know that I can still get film for it. And I want to do a little bit with that but I don't want to just be trendy because everybody else is doing it. I want to find the right thing for it because I grew up on – every kind of Polaroid you can imagine. I mean, I grew up through the era, the best era of photography because I literally came through the most basic little box cameras. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started to, there's just everything now digitally. You can, digitally, it's like being an electric guitar player because 
with a, if you know your camera well, just within the camera before it ever hits a computer Photoshop, you can control so much of the warmth, the coolness, the contrast, just the way the thing reads an image, the overexposure, the underexposure, so that you can create a lot of just what you need right in the camera, you know? I um, started dabbling in photography at the dawn of of affordable DSLRs. It was the early 2000s, and uh, I, I remember getting uh, a film SLR, and, uh, and over time making the investment to switch to digital SLR primarily because it sped up the feedback loop. And I was able to immediately get feedback, and it made it easier, I feel, to learn. And, and, it, and it sped up my learning process. And I remember at the time obsessing, or not obsessing, or thinking a lot about, and as were many people, about when digital cameras would be able to match the quality or feel of a film. And I feel like they never really matched it in some perhaps technical ways. They, may, they, they clearly surpassed the resolution, but the feel is not there. But let's, let's just stop right there. And let's go back to what I just said about having an electric guitar. Uh -huh. I mean, it's like saying, why can't I create the same sound on this nylon string classical guitar or this steel string Martin that I can on my Les Paul? It's not supposed to be. Right. I never understood that. Do you like this or do you like that better? I like them all. It's just a hell of a lot easier a hell of a lot more fun for me who's I'm I'm as much of a graphic artist when it comes to the post of a photo yeah what you do after it's taken I'm as much of a graphic artist as I am just a photographer so I'm not trying to perfect everything I like to mess stuff up I like to take it to a different level and you know just like a graphic artist does make you feel something else about a portrait than just how clear it is or whatever. I mean, if you've already got something, sometimes you're inspired to take it further. And yes, you could do that with photography in the dark room and with, you know, other processes, but I love digital photography and I don't like, you know, it's like saying that shooting with a Polaroid isn't like shooting film or right. like, you know, any, any, you know, people do pinhole photography and they make a whole career of it. And it's nothing like shooting an SLR. You know what I mean? It's like they're also Holgas, which I love. I love that they have light leaks. And until you start using that camera, you don't know what your camera's personal light leak is or how, you know, how it's going to shoot because it's a plastic little toy camera. And all that stuff, it's about, for me, being an artist, it's about, you can express, you could take, you could become a whole, you could throw away every camera you have and just buy a whole gun, learn how to use it. And you could be like, that could be your thing. You know, you could do a book of Holga photography in five years because you figured out this is my vibe. I found my direction with this. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with everything. Your DSLR, if you decide to get rid of that and just get a high end or low end point and shoot, whatever that camera's limitations are. And whatever your, you know, form of expression is, what those limitations is to me, that's the fun. You know, that's why some people paint with watercolors, some people paint with oils, and some people use, you know, colored chalk. It's all what you're looking for. I feel like perhaps film or the qualities of film 
I feel might have been almost romanticized at one point. And I think of filmmakers as well, discussing uh, somewhat subjective terminology in terms of how digital can't match the warmth or... I agree to a, to a degree, but again, I think you can romanticize like I am. I can romanticize digital. I can romanticize SX-70 por- you know, Polaroids. There was at, When the SX-70 Polaroids first came out, they had a really thick emulsion and a lot of people were doing this thing right after it spit out. That was the one where it spit out the camera yeah. before you had to pull apart all Polaroid films, you know, the swingers and the big shots. I used all those and you pulled the film apart like you do on some of the pro Polaroid film packs. But the SX-70 was the first camera to spit out a photo. You'd take a picture and it'd go bing, mm-hmm. and it'd come out the front of that thing. And the very early ones, it was a gelatinous emulsion till it hardened while it was developing it was gelatinous so you could take like a stylus like the prong of a fork or the edge of a knife or a toothpick and you could move that stuff around and you could swirl it and blend it and i mean people were doing you know there's a peter gabriel album cover like that there's whole books of that stuff and to me you know i used to do that as a young teenager somebody gave me Polaroids to play around with. And we started going, oh, you can do this with them. And that became our thing because, oh, cool, we're manipulating a photo that way. So, I mean, I could romanticize that uh, as opposed to any other kind of photography or, you know, silent movies. I could romanticize the silent movies of, you know, the early Laurel and Hardy movies or Charlie Chaplin or those kind of things. But it's it's all your perspective, I think. I don't think any's better. Now that anyone and everyone carries a camera in their pocket and the amount of images we see every day has skyrocketed, do you think the general public is more or less able to discern and appreciate quality photography based on the fact that anyone and everyone has a camera and and considers themselves a bit of a photographer? So the question is, can people discern quality? Do you think that it's it's become easier or harder for them to discern quality now that everyone carries a camera in their pocket every day? I say extremely to the highest level of extremely harder because people are people artistically, not just photography, but people artistically are so, you know, I think just in general, people don't have a clue anymore. I really do. I mean, I'd hate to be cynical. But there's just too much of everything out there, and there's there's no there's no baseline because we live most of our lives through a device, and on that device, it's it's an informational overload. There's information which is visual, musical, verbal, editorial, and so much of it is pure garbage and opinion. And it's not real. And then there's a tiny bit of it that is factual, that is truly real and all that. So I think we're just it's there's so much information that the in the in the olden days before there was an Internet or whatever, way before even the, you know, mass Internet we have now, the levels of of quality have always they were always kind of closer in the old days when everything you read it or you looked at it, you know, you know, you had to go to a library to, to look at something or a mm-hmm. museum or whatever. And now because you just have this glut of just everything, infer- like I said, just information in general, 
I think it's so watered down to try and find the needles in the haystack that are, you know, the truths, you know, the truths in art, the truths in photography, the truths in what's what just in general, you know, I think it's actually harder to find, you know, real truths in the world because of the mass information we have and the mass amount of the, the, the percentage of misinformation far outweighs the, the, the truest of, what is the tiny bit of reality that we have? Do you know what I'm saying? For sure. I and think it's I think it's changed a lot. And especially in our lifetimes, you know, we've seen a grand scale of change in what media has become, period. You know, and that's how we get our, you know, brain food and our and a lot of our opinions and everything from, you know, now it's a lot of the internet, but it's always been radio or TV or films or whatever. Has this affected your your livelihood or demand for your work? Or do you yes. feel like you're insulated from it? No. That's a thing that I thought for a while because, you know, like I said, I used to be one of the handful of people that was doing what I do. So it wasn't as hard to find the work and it wasn't as hard to be seen. But now it's, you know, like I said, there's anybody with a – any kind of digital camera and a ability to put their stuff up on the internet just, and I don't just, again, I don't just mean photography. I mean everywhere, but especially in photography, I'm not a specialty anymore. I'm not, you know, I don't think there's anything special about me except exactly what it is that I do. And people have to see it and recognize it and relate to it. And, you know, that's the new challenge for me you know, every day now is to think, how can I, again, how can I find, you know, a portal into those new people that don't know who I am and how can I do something different than I've been doing it? You know, that's the, that's always the hardest part, but it's not, it's not hard. Like, oh my God, I have to do this. It's, I love the challenge of always, you know, trying to figure that out as I go along, you know, that's part of the deal a moment that where this hit me or the, this transition hit me, I think it was 2013 when the Chicago Sun-Times laid off its entire photography department, every single photographer, including a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. Oh, yeah. And they decided to give their journalists some basic 101, photography 101 training course, to yeah. capture their own images and video. And I couldn't believe it. There's a lot of that across the board in the past, you know, I would say, what is it now? About eight or nine years, I felt, I felt the decline of editorial photography. And I, I, I think my joke that I make, it's not actual numbers, is that 85% of the money I made for about 15 years of my life was editorial and it was good. I was working for international magazines, national magazines, local magazines, the Austin Chronicle. Editorially, I was doing really well, but about 2008, the bottom dropped out. It just dropped out. I mean, three or four mag, I mean, three or four, just for me, I can't speak again for everybody, but for me, three or four of my constant magazines, just all within months of each other were like, we're out of this business. We're going to internet only, blah, blah, blah. And when one of them went to internet only is like the guys that have been doing the magazine kind of gave it up to their underlings. They went off to pursue other careers. 
and the underlings, you know, they're just doing what people do now. They're pulling stuff off the net. If they need a picture of T-Bone Burnett or they need to, you know, whereas before people would be going, this person's coming to town. The, the Jayhawks are coming to town. Shoot them. You know, old 97s are coming to town. Shoot them. Oh, you've got Jimmy LaFave there. Shoot him. You know, people were giving me assignments. Now people are stealing from me. I mean, there's a magazine here in Austin that since they started, and I won't name names, but they have stolen from me. And I know they know they're my photos. And I know that, that because they put my credits on them. But there used to be kind of a code when you put somebody's credit on a photo in a magazine that they would pay you for that because they knew it was yours. Even if it did come from a, a, a like manager or a, a publicist, they'd go, well, we pay for photos, so we're going to pay that guy. But now it's like everybody's scrapping for bucks. So if they, they know a photo's a Todd Wolfson photo and they're putting it up on their web page and all that, they don't care. And I'm not going to, I'm, I'm told myself a long time ago, because the internet is still the wild, wild west. I'm not going to police all that stuff. I drive myself crazy. I'd rather just find more clients and, you know, do it for me the right way. You know, I can't, I can't handle, you know, spending, can you imagine spending all that time for this little photo and that little photo to be outraged about it? It's kind of, you know, people are stealing music here and there. They're, you know, it's, you can't really keep tabs on all that stuff. I mean, who could? You mentioned earlier that you've seen that uh, your photograph of Alice Cooper used left and right. Oh, yeah. Have you ever come across a, a particularly severe case of infringement where it's something that perhaps went on to make money and used it and you considered I'm trying sure, to get your money? I'm sure. No, I've never, I have confronted some people and got some, you know, Undisclosed settlements. No, I've just done my own lawyering, you know, bugging people and really working on their conscience. And sometimes it doesn't work. And other times I'm like, look at this. You put it in like the front page of your, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't give you that photo. And it's like the first thing, big page in their magazine or whatever. So I've got them to, you know, make some sort of settlement with me financially. But like I said, no, I wouldn't have the time. I mean, because I do so much. And, and, you know, like I said, there's been a magazine that I don't think I've ever seen an issue of the magazine hardly that didn't have a couple of my photos in it. Wow. But, you know, I, the amount of money I've made from, mag, you know, a lot of magazines have treated me that way. It's why I don't do, you know, anymore. I don't do that much editorial because it's harder and harder to just make small money, let alone decent money. So I'd rather make the better money working one-on-one -on -one with somebody that, here, I need my CD cover done. I need my promo photos done. I need my book jacket photo done. I need my family photos done. And I say, this is how much it is. And they're like, cool. So much more straightforward. You know what I mean? For sure. You know, so the editorial thing, it doesn't appeal to me as much because, you know, it's harder to get back into where you would, you know, you'd have to, you have to be the guy who shoots the cover or the features in Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, or things like that to be making a living. The big magazines, if you're doing it on the level I'm doing it at, you're a lot better off finding, you know, your niche, your niche in, in other things, I think, in this day and age. You know, editorial is not the way. Todd, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. Until next time.